0: I want to give a shout out to our newest members in our Patreon community. So let's welcome Barry Westbrook in Franklin, Tennessee. Kristen Coates in Newport, Rhode Island. Jennifer Kellogg in New York. Anthony O'Neill in Dublin, Ireland. Tim Elzor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Alicia Lee Watson in Charlotte, North Carolina. And last and very least, Toy Ruggles in Dayton, Ohio. Folks... If you haven't had the opportunity to hear Tori ask our guests some questions, well, you're missing out on this elite questioner. Here's a preview of what you missed on our last group call where Tori was given the opportunity to ask our guest, Nicole Snow, a question. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, thanks for that, Steven. I'm scared to do this, but there's a guy named Tori. We let him ask a question on the last group call he was on. I almost revoked his membership. So he's trying to redeem himself so you're gonna to have to unmute yourself and let's see if we can do better than you did on the last group call. I'm scared. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? <laughs> it was a long-winded well, question.
1: Austin, it, it, I'm glad that you're getting past it. It's good that you're over
0: it now. <laughs> I almost canceled his membership right <laughs> You got this, buddy. Right, you got can, this. You got this. All right. Am I,
1: is, are you done? Yeah, you're done. I can go now.
0: So if you want to see if Tori was able to redeem himself, then check out Group Call 9. And that call's only available for Patreon members. And if you're not one, well, you know what to do.
2: But I think as an entrepreneur, when you look at, I never set out and said, oh, I want to be in healthcare software. But when you pick up and you kind of invest in yourself and you understand what makes you tick and what your passion is and where it is, the opportunities because you're here are limitless. How I am where I am really directly relates back to one event. Now, I couldn't have known it at the time. Almost every cliche that you've ever heard, they're all kind of true. And you don't realize that until you're older. My biggest thing is the cliche of... And then just having the guts and the craziness to be like, I'm going to go do this on my own. And I think that's what makes entrepreneurship so hard. That's a scary leap, as I'm sure you know, as I'm sure everybody that you've talked to knows. My company's name is Advanced Medical Strategies, and we offer strategic intelligent software into insurance carriers and payers and risk takers for medical claims and health insurance. So it's a very big space in just in terms of even gross domestic product and dollars exchanged. And it's also a very uh, complex marketplace that a lot of people don't understand. And our company is built around a set of software solutions that addresses a very specific, complex problem within the healthcare payer chain. And that is around these what's called catastrophic diagnoses and drugs and treatments that are incredibly expensive. And we hear about them on the news all the time. This drug cost this or this bankrupted this person. And that complexity of that whole chain from supply to patient and how things get paid and reviewed, and it's a difficult space. And in some ways, it's top notch in terms of some of the care, but it is very rife with complexities that lead to a tremendous amount of fraud, waste, abuse, and ultimately leading to kind of where we are today, medical claims costs, bankrupting people and deductibles going up. And so a lot of that gets segmented into lots of different problems. And so we're focused on the very high cost problems, stuff you never really want your doctor to say you're going to have to undertake or do.
0: Sounds like you got a lawyer to understand this type of stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think in the industry, there's this common pervasive theme. I don't know how big it is or how small it is, but whenever I'm trying to explain to somebody what it is that we do in a space that I think most Americans overall are not only detached from, but like you said, it's very complex to understand. I, I just liken it to think of one purchase that you've made in the last 10 years. Where you've received the goods or services, and a bill just shows up at your door, and you have no idea what it was going to cost you, and you didn't have the ability to shop for it or compare for it, and you just got a bill, and that's it. You know, if you spend any time thinking about that, there's no other purchase that you make where you have no idea what you're going to get and how much it's going to cost. And that's the way the system is set up today, and it's very opaque and it's hurting us as a country.
0: So do you like represent one side versus the other for you to make money in this? Are you just trying to make it more equitable? I'm just trying to figure out. It makes sense what you just said, but then I'm thinking like, okay, how do you, Peter, and your company actually make money with this?
2: Right. So what our software will do for payers, we actually work on both sides. I would consider us incredibly agnostic where in some ways we're a data insight company as it relates to what should and shouldn't be and clinical and all these other factors that go into you know, a complex treatment. We'll work on both sides. Well, look, mistakes happen. That's just a fact of life, right? You got a lot of dollars moving through a system, a lot of manual processes and claims and this and rules and regulations and varying contracts, very little standardization. So mistakes are going to happen, right? Hospitals are going to submit a bill and providers are going to submit a bill and they're going to have errors on them. And some of those errors and they happen. But then there's another set of, we call it like, you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole or where's the cheese going to move to next? There are providers who employ internal and external revenue optimization companies. How do I get the most money out of an insurance carrier so I can change my billing practices to extract the most dollars? And some of those practices are deliberate and they take on many different shapes and forms. So we help payers understand what those things are and they're big and they're complex and they can cost a lot of money. On the other side, on, let's say, a hospital or provider system side, and this isn't really at the for us, it's not like we don't deal with primary care physicians. I don't want to say payers don't care about those things, but those things are pretty common, straightforward, routine. It's complex, big dollar stuff. On the provider side, they'll submit a half a million dollar bill and it will get denied. Sometimes that can be a tactic. I'm not saying it's a bad tactic, but they're missing information or things didn't happen the way that it was supposed to for that claim to get paid appropriately. With our software, we help payers understand why something's going to get rejected before it gets rejected. So they can actually submit something that's significantly more clean, well played out, and they're gonna get reimbursed actually faster. And it's a constant game of whack-a-mole.
0: So do you work with the federal government at all? No, I do not work with the federal government. Well, I didn't know if they're going to lose your software now, because I think even if I know this, and it seems like a lot more people are about mixed diagnosis of COVID cases so they can get reimbursed to hospitals.
2: Yeah, right away when COVID came, the nimble agile companies didn't matter where they were right on this very large chain, a chain of from buying something or employing somebody to deliver care all the way through payment of that care. It's a very complex chain. It was a mad scramble. How are we going to build this so we can maximize it? If we can give a certain, and how are we going to prevent them from doing things that they shouldn't do? And so we deployed into our software within 48 hours,
0: 20-something rules. I mean, who knows where this will be by the time your interview comes out it makes sense. Like if the federal government is going to reimburse these hospitals or whatever, they're going to purposely say that, put them on a ventilator for 30 minutes and they get extra money. Like I really haven't talked about COVID at all really on this podcast yet, but it's just interesting. Like what you do is so in it right now. And especially with the billing factor, and this is going to be a forefront thing. I think that the federal government is going to have to figure out what the reimbursement to the hospitals and whatnot. Cause I mean, these hospitals, it sounds like a lot of them are go under cause they're empty, right? I see also why they would want to bill it as a COVID case. Well, it's funny. What's
2: happening really is, and it's kind of lost in the sauce. And if you read between the lines of what's being said, or if you're in the industry, you kind of understand this. And most Americans don't. And it's a real hardship for the hospital systems. This is very much a real hardship, certainly the ones where you have these hotspots. Right now, overall, if you look at the payer side of the equation, dollars out and claims in, claims in equals dollars out. The claims volume is down anywhere from 30 to 60 percent. Hospitals have shut down and only treating COVID patients, which means they're giving up their very lucrative other surgeries and other courses of treatments and all these other things that has lost revenue. And it's hard to think of a hospital as a revenue generator, whether it's profit or nonprofit, doesn't really matter. They have to generate revenue. So when your claims volume is down 30 to 60 percent, and the COVID cases aren't really very lucrative, by the way. In terms of overall costs, unless somebody is incredibly severe and on a ventilator for two weeks, these claims are not going to be very large in terms of what the marketplace would deem large. So their claims volume is down. They do not have the revenue. And that's a real hardship buried in that headline, which we've heard, I believe most people buried, is exactly what my company was kind of doing is. Sometimes that revenue and the profitability associated with that revenue is so outsized compared to what a normal functioning marketplace would dictate. You shouldn't pay $500 for a spoon, but they charge $500 for a spoon. They may get paid $250 for a spoon. So it's very lucrative. Right now, they can't sell any spoons.
0: Appreciate that insight, but I'm just curious though, you said you're the actual founder of this company, AMS?
2: I'm a co founder with my sister. My partner is my sister and she's an MD. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask if you were a doctor, you didn't do the medical route. You're more the business side. Yep, We just took two totally different paths. She was an MD.
2: She was in practice for a number of years. And then she kind of went on a different path and we ended up merging back together in 2003, which is kind of where we got started in a different company then. This is, you know, it was much more in a consulting fashion then. And then I ended up coming on full-time in 2007, you know, kind of get helped her build that business and get it kind of going. So yeah, we co-founded it together. We entered into the software business from our experience on the other side about five or six years ago and really have never looked back. We've brought on a tremendous amount of clients, have grown the business exponentially.
1: I just joined Patreon to support you guys. So that's something that helps you guys out. Keep doing what you're doing, Then Cool, you yeah. know?
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. With the Patreon membership, you get this one-on-one call. Plus, we're doing two group calls a month now with past guests. Plus, there's an exclusive Patreon feed where you get special episodes if you're a Patreon member. Oh, man. Nice. I was listening to you. Awesome. Well, you say you're with your sister too as a co-founder. So, I mean, as children, did y'all brainstorm this idea that y'all would come together and have a healthcare software solution? <laughs> not
2: even a little bit. This was never planned out. This is just not. Anything that we were like, oh, we're going to end up working together, you could just not even a glimmer of a thought of an idea. Our paths just ended up merging. And for whatever reason, it's two halves of one brain that we're able to put together something that the industry hasn't seen before. And it's random. It's really inexplicable.
0: I was kind of joking because, yeah, it seems it'd be impossible to brainstorm that up, especially as children. It's so interesting. At least you're saying your sister had a medical background because if you didn't at all, I'm like, how the heck do you even get involved in this? Before we reel it back, real quick, how big is your company today? Just so we could get a broad view of how many clients you might have or employees, et cetera.
2: Yeah, we have over a hundred clients and we have twenty-five employees. We're based actually out of Boston. I live in in Charlotte, and I usually tell, you know I commute back and forth. Well, I had commuted back and forth. I left the Boston area. It'll be three years in July. Just I was just tired of the weather. And we have kind of employees, most of them located, but we have employees in all different states.
0: If you want to reel back, I'm just trying to figure out what are the most interesting parts of the story, because maybe the young entrepreneurs or any business owners could learn from in yours. Normally, I do take it kind of chronologically, but I don't know as far as it might be a little better if we just jump to what do you think are the most interesting points here in your story to help these people who are listening now?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about some of these different macro type of things of what's you know, the three things you can point
0: to in all those. You know, typical kind of... Give me the three secrets, Peter. That's what everyone wants to know. I know
2: the three. There are, you know, everybody says, oh, this is the secret. I'm just not that type to buy into that. I'm an analytical type of person. I like to create order out of chaos. So to me, it's all of those cliches that you hear where you talk about persistence or almost every cliche that you've ever heard. They're all kind of true. And you don't realize that until you're older. And that's the funny thing is, It's not what you know, it's who you know, right? That cliche where you're like, uh, you know, and you just kind of roll your eyes when you hear somebody older say it or however many of them there are out there. They're all kind of true. And you just, my biggest thing is the cliche of like, you have to find something that you're passionate about as really the most important thing because I don't feel like I work and I generally mean that. And I think most of the people in my organization would say, I work incredibly hard. I think they work incredibly hard. I think I have an amazing team and they're all so bright and you know, they're between clinical and data scientists, but I don't feel like I work because I think if you have something that you're passionate about or you can understand what motivates and drives you, you can be successful at anything that you really want to do. So I don't think it's just one individual thing. It's just how do you feel about what it is that makes you tick, and can you apply that into something that gets you excited? And for me, it certainly wasn't healthcare, not even a little bit. I came out of the service industry. I came out of the restaurant industry. I started off as a bus boy at a dog track in Revere, Massachusetts, which, by the way, has the first public beach in the country. Revere, Massachusetts it wasn't the best beach you know, when I was growing up, but you know, I started off as a bus boy in the food service industry and worked in the food service industry until I was 30 years old. But through that experience, there's always been this common thread where I like to create order out of chaos. And I had some very good specific points where I gravitated to people who I thought were smart, not just intellectual. And I think that's important. But I think the more street smart you can be in business, the more successful you're going to be as well. So it's never one thing. But it's definitely about finding what you're good at and then being passionate about where you apply it.
0: When you're talking about passion there, I thought you said you weren't going to have passion because from an outsider's perspective, how the hell can you have passion with his company that he runs here? So how do you find that passion with yours? Just because from outside, again, it's like to me, I guess if I was an accountant, right? Not bashing accountants. Some accountants are passionate about being looking at taxes and whatnot, right? That's not my cup of tea. I'm just curious, what are you passionate about in your, I guess, your business? Because you said it wasn't even necessarily the industry.
2: Again, it goes back to that thing. So I like the order out of chaos, but more than anything, I love the ability to take something that's always been and stand it on its head, spin it around, and put it in front of somebody in a totally different way, just because of the way my brain ultimately ended up being wired. And have them go, holy crap, I had no idea. I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction about bringing forth simple solutions to very complex problems. So there's a gratification in being able to take all of these different talented people around me and apply my skill set and then bring it forth to somebody who then says, wow, this is incredible. And so I get a tremendous amount of gratification out of that. And I think in some ways it's like, you know, solving a Rubik's cube, but this is just a Rubik's cube that will never end. You can solve one Rubik's cube and another one is just going to appear. So I guess that's the only way I can really describe it. The results are typically what makes me go, wow, this is a lot of fun. Like I thought it was going to be this. I didn't realize it was going to be this much or this bad or this good.
0: Right. Yeah. When I alluded to like skipping over a timeline, I was like thinking maybe if you want to go year by year as far as... Because that's usually what I try to do with most of the interviews, but I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be too boring if we go year by year about a medical software business. But I think it was interesting that you said that you were basically a waiter up until your 50s today, you said. So up till 30 years of age, you were a waiter?
2: No, no. Actually, the year by year thing is interesting. It's the most curved straight path that anybody has ever taken it. And how I am where I am really directly relates back to one event. Now, I couldn't have known it at the time, but it does link back to one very, very specific event. I actually started off working when I was 15 years old and I was a busboy at a dog track. That was early 1985. Obviously, 1985 was a very different time. And this dog track was a very, very, very popular dog track at the time. And I hustled. I worked weekends, went to school, and I made a lot of money in tips. And I saved a lot of money. I actually saved so much money, I was actually able to pay for my first year in college myself, which at the time was uh, $14,000. And I had all that money saved from back when I was 15. So it was lucrative. I met a lot of interesting people. And there was one event that ultimately ended up happening where the dog track itself needed to go under a major renovation. It was a massive renovation project. And I met up with this person who was put in charge of this renovation project and a gentleman named Mark. But the complexity was that the dog track was actually owned by a very famous restaurant person up in the Northeast area, a gentleman by the name of Charles Sarkis. And he owned a whole bunch of restaurants on top of it all. So two different companies, but it was controlled ownership. So what ended up happening was, as you can imagine, in the 80s and a lot of money and stuff, there was a lot of theft going on in the food service side. You know, the food service would bring in on a weekend could bring in, you know, $250,000. So uh, it was a very manual process. And through that, this gentleman, Mark, who's doing the renovation, he fired everybody, like everybody. Anybody who was a manager or supervisor—I was young, so I didn't really understand the scope of that. It was just widespread. You know, that
0: there's just no other way to describe it. Did he fire you too?
2: No, 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 no. I was a busboy. I was a 16-year-old busboy. I didn't even know what the hell was going on.
0: (laughs) Okay, I didn't know if he fired everyone, including you, or if you were like one of the few left. Who ended up left were a lot of the people in the restaurant itself,
2: right? The executive chef, the busboys. But all the supervisors and managers for the overall food service, because it was a very big place, talking about, you know, 13 concession stands, 12 bars, full restaurant, the pub, you know, it was a lot of food in this place. And he brought in a gentleman by the name of Joe Zamita, And Joe came from the outside with another guy and they were connected to Budruckers and Dunkin' Donuts and a lot of food service background. The problem is they didn't know the dog track in a local union in a city like Revere. So it's a bit of a fish out of water scenario. So just by happenstance being one of the few left standing, I ended up becoming a supervisor in the food service organization. And this guy Joe sat me down at one point and said, we're gonna computerize our inventory. The inventory was done by hand. Think of all those places it was done by hand. A clipboard and a pencil, it was crazy. And he sat me down in front of a computer and he said, this is uh, Lotus one, two, three, the very first version right before Excel was even a thing. And he said, we're going to computerize the inventory. This is what you do here, learn this on your own. And I don't know, it just kind of clicked. It had that experience never happened of him sitting me in front of a computer and showing me a spreadsheet. There's just no way I'd be where I am today, period. It was just something that clicked, I liked it. And that launched my career through the restaurant service company, through the company where I eventually graduated college then I went to do store openings on the restaurant side then I became the vice president of IT then I became the CIO I was there through the year 2000 changed over all their computer systems and that's how I ended up in the restaurant business as long as I did I started off as a busboy and I left as the CIO and when I left it was the year 2000 right after the Y2K everybody was freaking out I had a beautiful office I was on Boylston Street in Boston beautiful part of my job was incredibly stable. I was 30. You know, I wasn't married. I didn't have any real responsibilities. And I had implemented Oracle software to, as part of this Y2K changeover. And I met up with these group of guys who were technology guys who had a small company and they were part of the technology stack that did the Oracle implementation. And it was midnight on 2000. I was sitting in my office because you know everybody was freaked out. The world was going to collapse. Most of us knew it wasn't. And these guys came by, a gentleman by the name of Rick and a good friend, um, Michael, and they just checked in, you know, and hey, is everything okay? And I just thought it was really nice of them, like, what vendor just comes by at midnight to make sure everything's going okay? Maybe they wanted to do first night too, but they definitely weren't that type. And we were just talking and they said, you know, geez, do you know anybody who wants to kind of help us in a financial president type role? We're trying to grow our Oracle consulting company, Oracle would has their own consulting, but then there was this whole ecosystem of vendors who implemented Oracle and did all these other things. And I just printed out my resume and I handed it to them. And they were just like, why would you ever leave this? Like, why would you leave your job? And again, you know, it was just 30 years old and I wanted to have the challenge. I wasn't going to go any further. And I just thought, like, wow, this could be really fun, and I could run this business, and I could do these things. I had done so much with technology and finance and all of these things, that I thought it's a skill set that I could really grow. So I joined up with them in 2000. I left, and we built this company called Scepter Database Consultants. We built, it, grew it, and we sold it in 2005 to an Indian offshore firm because that was kind of what was going on after that. I stayed on for about 18 months. It wasn't the right fit for me working for a big big Indian company. And my sister had just gotten this thing going. And I was like, geez, you know, I think I could help you grow this. And we started. And then it took me about four to five years to really understand this industry. And then I was able to put together all of those skills that I had learned to say there is a better way to do this and combine her knowledge with my skill set and develop the software.
0: Yeah, it's quite a learning curve. You're saying four to five years? It was the hardest learning curve I've ever had. I mean, I believe you. I can only imagine, especially when we've been talking about COVID and all those changes right now coming in, but you're having to deal, go back and imagine, looking at hospitals and everything and looking at thousands of different cases. It just sounds like you fell in love with databases or spreadsheets at 15. And up to this point, it'd been kind of, you were able to figure it out. But then this is just, even though it's still numbers, it sounds like, you have to learn a new language. It would seem like, like it's me learning French and I don't know any French, but I still understand how sentences are formed.
2: Yeah, I think that's an accurate way to describe it. I can't do what I do without all of the clinical expertise that my sister and her team bring to the table. And then you can't do what you do unless you bring all of the industry experience that one of my other executives, Adria, and my chief growth officer, Derek, and some of these other people that are around me that have these industry experience but the ability to translate that knowledge and that experience into a user interface and experience on a piece of software was my skill set and but it can't be done without understanding all of that language and what that really means so i'm in a lot of calls often with clinical people and md's and pharmacists and i still trip over the words like i can't pronounce half these drugs my sister laughs at me and But I understand, I understand why it's there, what it's doing, what it means and all those other things. But I just couldn't do that without
0: those clinical people. I really wanted to like have a small membership where I can have a community because long-term that's going to help everybody else out more.
1: In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. To be honest, I would have spent a lot more. Don't charge me more now, (laughs) but- I'm feeling, yeah. I would have spent a lot more. Some of these meetup groups that I go to, they charge like $50 a swing and, and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And I think you're selling it too cheap, almost. (laughs) I mean, in all honesty, Mary said that she had the whole, you know, thing that sparked this conversation. Is I guess she had a marketing company on. And now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here. But she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month. It already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. If I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know?
0: Could you tell us when your sister started a company and when you came in, you said, obviously, there was a big learning curve, but maybe just to emphasize one more time what you were trying to implement, what your software did versus, I guess, there was nothing like it at the time?
2: Yeah. What happened was, so she was growing a business. She was with a company called EHR. She's one of their early employees, I think like employee number seven. And she left maybe about five years into it because she kind of saw this other side of the business, which was large insurance carriers taking on a lot of risk on very expensive cases. and. She kind of saw a space that she liked and that fed into her skill sets. And she just started off on her own with nothing. Just, hey, I'm going to do this. And she got some support from my dad and some support from me and when i eventually sold with my partners the database consulting firm it was small and so i was like well financially i could you know withstand a year or two of being okay and so when i came on i spent that amount of time of really just trying to understand what is reinsurance what is stop loss what is the difference between a pbm and a medical clinic it's just a language And, you know, I came from a background where you'd have to go into these large multinational companies, you know, implement financial or manufacturing systems or all kinds of complex Oracle software. I would completely understand their business. Now, all of a sudden, I'm in this sea of like, what? Like, I don't understand this at all. It just makes no sense to me. So she had to work with me and she worked at it pretty hard. And basically, the business was consulting. I have these large, complex claims. Clinically, what do I need to do? What do we think it's going to cost? How do I know what this might cost me next year? You're talking about medical bills that can be, we just had a client who got a $12 million medical bill that was after a 50% discount, right? So there's a hospital out there that just sent an insurance company a $24 million bill. That happened.
0: Yeah, what do you get done for 24 million? I'm just curious.
2: Unfortunately, this is very common. It's a two premature babies. Now look, they've got exceptional care. It's not $12 million worth of care and that's the problem, right? That's the problem. What is it really? What should it be? People don't realize hospitals can charge whatever they want. There's nothing preventing a hospital from charging $5,000 for a spoon. There's nothing. You could go out right now and look up something on a hospital's charge master and you'll see a price for an aspirin of $75. They can do that. There's nothing preventing them from that. Now uh, that gets into a whole other argument. So we were doing these consulting things. And after a while, what I really quickly realized was there's so many of these problems in these complex cases. Why can't a piece of software do this before things get actually paid? Why can't we better pull these out and examine them for the right reasons to prevent all these problems on the back end? And I was kind of laughed at <laughs> internally industry-wide where I would talk to different people. But I just knew like, no, this, so the joke internally in the family is I had to like crack open my sister's brain and say, take me through all of these experiences that you've had on this consulting level. I understand enough now about the industry. Tell me how you do what you do because I'm going to turn it into software. And she was like, absolutely not. We laugh about it now. I never listened to my sister's first answer. I just let her first answer be whatever it is. And then, right, persistence comes up. And about three months later, she came back and she's like, well, and she started to kind of explain it. And I set up a spreadsheet, right back to spreadsheet. And I said, lay it out like this for me. And then in my spare time with my friend, who's now our CIO, we put together a system.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask this in your spare time. As you said that, <laughs> you're reading my mind. I'm like, so for your spare time, do you like just clean your house or what do you do? It seems like the organized stuff from chaos, you said.
2: Yeah, my wife's the organizer. No, no. I mean, I love spending time with my son. I love playing basketball with him. You know, I'm very involved in in what I can do for my family. I'm not the most social, gregarious, going out type of person. So I pretty much follow my marriage vows where I just tell my wife, Hey, I'll just hang on to the tail of your kite. So that's basically what I do in my spare time is hang on to the tail of her kite. And she's much more outgoing and social and so it's good for me. Whatever we're doing, I'm just holding on to her kite. And I'm good with that because it's nice not to make decisions sometimes.
0: Yeah, it sounds like because you got to make a lot of them at work. I mean, all of us need some type of chill in your mind out, especially if you're pouring over data like it sounds like you do constantly. Is it best to think of your company, at least when you got started? It makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And you're saying this could be beneficial to multiple people, not like only the insurance people, but maybe the hospitals on the efficiencies of what they charge. It sounds like maybe you've expanded the software from even what it initially was. But are you thought of, were you like an arbitrator to an extent of this is what our software does to make sure that things are in balance?
2: I like to consider ourselves like a neutral party. Look, things are supposed to happen and things aren't supposed to happen. And sometimes mistakes are made and then sometimes various things just happen. So we feel like it's our job to present the facts as they are in a way in which the issues are brought to light. And what happens from there ultimately can go multiple different ways. It can improve policy for an insurance company. They can turn around and say, yeah, we didn't realize we were maybe doing A, B, and C. And now that you've brought this to light, we can be better at our pre-authorization and move these things through quickly. So we are a neutral party. If you look at these types of charges for these types of drugs across all these other different benchmarks, whether it's what the government pays or what a provider acquired it for or what other compatriots pay, you're paying this. It's up to you what you want to do about that. There could be a very good reason that they're paying that too, but at least they know. Or you can't give this drug to a child of this age for this diagnosis. So why did the claim get submitted that way? Right now, you'd like to think, well, crap, they didn't do that. Did they? they didn't give a wrong drug to a child. Highly unlikely, but it's building correctly. And that has consequences too. So sometimes we are just the neutral arbitrator of what is compared to what should be and bringing that to the very top of the pile, which otherwise either just goes out the back end or gets lost in delays. And everybody wants it to be a better system. It's a very complex system, though.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. My mind can wrap around one thing that you said, but then it's like you have all these little add ons, it sounds like, to your software. Maybe that's been added on over the years, but I'm just curious. It made sense when you started it that there was a need here. How do you get your first client? How did you actually make money and like pitch them on that? Because you said people are laughing at you because maybe some people don't want things quote unquote fixed, right? I'm just curious. Yeah. How do you actually start making money now that you think you've solved this big issue?
2: It's funny, like the laughing at that's, you know, it's interesting, right? So the laughing at was from other vendors who were like, you're crazy. You can't do that. It's just too complicated. I take that as a challenge. I'm like, yeah, I can. And I just will always bet on myself and my sister. And definitely, i will always bet on my team. I'll bet on our team before I bet on anybody else. And that just my unwavering belief. But yeah, the first client is interesting, and again, I think that relates back to your passion, right? And, and my passion, order out of chaos, but it's also, I'm a bit of a people pleaser, right? I want people to be happy, I want them to feel good about whatever interaction they have with me, and that comes out of the service industry. The two tenants of our organization right now are one, service, and two is great product, in that order. And that's why I have people from other industries, just like me, who have no experience in this whatsoever, but they have great service experience, we can work with that. So the first client, when you come up with this idea of, hey, I can take this piece and I can do this. Yeah, I'm skipping over a lot, but...
0: Yeah, could you say specifically, I think it might help people, just again, because your stuff's so complicated, if you remember exactly what you solved for that first client.
2: With the very first product, it was, look, there's about 150 catastrophic diagnoses out there that are very expensive. How do we deliver in an online fashion all the clinical and financial information people need in order to manage that risk clinically and financially? They're very expensive and people need to understand what's going to happen or what could happen. And doing that in a one-off fashion, hey, here's this case. It's great, but it's not scalable. It's also very hard to aggregate enough clients and do that. So, my business model at the time was, well, why don't we just give them the information they need in a steady, repeatable fashion and just keep doing what we do and then sell it as a subscription that they have access to? And that was our very first product, just around complex diagnoses, about 135 of them. It's 250 now with multiple other tenants off of it. And because of the relationships, it's, this all comes down to relationships, right? It's not what you know, it's who you know. And we had I'd assembled a board of advisors or some industry folks. We presented them what we did. And I basically said, what would you guys pay for this? And they were like, this is incredible. We pay this. I was like, okay, great. And then we launched our first product in September, which was an optimal time for the industry called underwriting
0: season. Yeah. September when? What year? God. Yeah. September
2: 2000, I want to say 14, 2014. We've been in business since 2003 at the time. So it's a combination of all that knowledge and experience being put into a software package. We did a demo to one of our longstanding clients, wonderful woman out of Connecticut. Her name is Janice. And I don't think we were 20 minutes through the demo and she's like, how much is it going to cost Send me a contract? And we just never looked back and we just expanded it from there. She's literally, that's it.
0: So how much did it cost
2: them? At the time, she was the very first person to cost $19,000 a year for that particular product.
0: Is it like 10 times that amount now?
2: No, for that product, that's one of the things I actually pride ourselves. So we actually have three levels now. So you can still buy that same exact software. If you're a stop loss or an MGU, a very specific type of client at a certain level, you can buy it today for $25,000. The most expensive package is forty.
0: But you're offering our listeners a discount right now, right? Where they can buy the software and just look at it for fun?
2: Sure. We always do that. I mean, I think that's part of what it is that we do. We always demo it and we always let people kind of have at it. And because there's just nothing like seeing it and using it and doing it, our biggest hurdle overall is we've been doing this the same way for 25 years. Why change now? So we had to build a software product to answer that question. Why change now? And that's a much bigger software solution set with a much higher price tag and identifies hundreds of millions of dollars annually. So that's why you need to understand it.
0: I believe you, especially if you're in it, but I was my jokes usually don't work out very well. I'm just saying most people listening probably right now don't want to look at that data and probably pay up any price tag to look at it.
2: I would venture a guess, like most of my conversations, right, in general, is I don't get to talk about what I do very much, right? Because exactly, most of your listeners are going to be like, I don't care about that.
0: I think it's interesting. This is a business idea that is hard to think of, especially if you don't know anything about it, right? Like, I don't know anything about the health field specifically. It's just amazing how many niches there are within any industry where you can make money.
2: Oh, yeah. And as an industry, right, as a portion of GDP, there's nothing bigger. So it is the biggest. And there is a massive ecosystem from the ground up on our healthcare system identifying varying degrees of all the things that we're talking about at varying levels. And now it's getting even more, it's getting more data-driven finally. You know, the industry is pretty far behind. So now there's gonna be even more companies popping up. You have know, things like social determinants. You're hearing that with COVID-19 right now. Why are African-American and low-income disproportionately affected and all those things? Those type of social determinants apply to lots of other things too. So the better the industry can understand those things, then the better they can address them, the better medications come out. So, you know, it's an ever-evolving, massive marketplace. And then there's some insurance companies and hospital systems that are a marketplace unto themselves, right? We hear the words like United and Cigna and Aetna and Humana. Each one of those insurance companies, those five insurance companies probably cover 75% of the American population. One of them is a marketplace in and of itself, in a huge marketplace. So it's wildly complex. And as Americans, we are very detached from it. We only get an explanation of benefits and how much your copay is, and you have no real stake in the game. And that's a bit of the problem too. But the system's set up that way, that you can't have a stake in the game. You can't call around and say, you know, Austin, if you were like, hey, I need to get a CAT scan or something, you know, an X ray or whatever, you can't call around and say, well, how much do you charge? They're going to say, what's your insurance?
0: I don't think you dealt with vets. You deal with vets? Not vets. I was just saying you. I know, but you said, yeah, to get my CAT scanned. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, no, yeah. CAT scans work on both cats, dogs, and actually humans. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they do. They work on both. They work on all kinds. But yeah, you can't shop for it. But at least at a vet, you can. If you want to get your CAT scanned,
0: I agree. By the way, I'm not that dumb. That was another joke. So You
2: know what? I'm slowing the uptake.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm slowing the delivery. It's all right. Uh, Yeah. It actually made a perfect point because I thought about that right as you said that. But it's like, you can actually call vets, right? And figure out how much it costs. Like, it's funny that you brought up CAT scan. It made me think of that. And you can't really do that with, you're saying, real healthcare. I guess if I'm going to hospital, I guess if I break an arm or something else, you're saying, basically? Yeah. How much more complicated it is for, and it should be pretty simple, you would think, because we're like dealing with us as humans versus like I can call and get my animal or figure it out elsewhere. So
2: Yeah, you can't. I mean, some basic services, you're going to be able to do it. a whole bunch of it's going to be, well, what's your insurance? Because you don't pay, your insurance company pays and they have all these other underlying things going on. So when you're in a very stressful situation, God forbid you get diagnosed with cancer, you just want to be cured. You want to be cured, you're not worried about the financial impact of that.
0: Yeah. You optimize for life at that point in time, not the uh, financial obligation.
2: Without a doubt. And that's the most important thing. And everybody can get rallied around that. At what cost to you financially too? And if you can't understand what that means, at some point, you're forced to make these horrible choices and decisions. And nobody should be confronted with that, particularly at that time. It's sad. It's, it's tragic.
0: And I know I got listeners in Mexico. I'm not hating on it at all. Maybe I have to go to a different country like Mexico to get something done because I can't afford it in the U.S., right?
2: Yeah, right. And then that brings with it its own set of scary (laughs) propositions. Right. But again, you talk about the ecosystem, Austin, you're picking up on things that a lot of people maybe don't pick up on, but that is literally called, there's a whole industry called medical tourism. There is an industry where you pay vendors and you can get the exact same drug for hepatitis C and get flown to the Cayman Islands get the drug, get all your expenses paid for everything and pay 50% less than if you did it here.
0: And if maybe you pay for it all yourself versus even using your interest, that's a discrepancy you're saying like in all these different places, whether some places in Europe, you might go to get something done or second world countries or what Thailand, I think a lot of people go there to get stuff done. It's like, like I guess you called it medical tourism because what's interesting, I think everyone understands by now how complicated your business is, but I was going to ask, is it only in the U.S.? Because even just thinking about this worldwide, I mean, we're just talking about one country here because things have to switch country to country.
2: They do switch country to country. I think every system will always have its pros and cons and issues. So whether it's a nationalized health system or set up kind of the way ours is, I think there's always going to be those problems. But I think as an entrepreneur, when you look at, I never set out and said, oh, I want to be in healthcare software. But when you pick up and you kind of invest in yourself and you understand what makes you tick and what your passion is and where it is, the opportunities because you're here are limitless. It's just kind of incumbent upon you to say, what am I good at? What am I passionate about? Who can I surround myself with that I can lift them up and learn from them and they can learn from me? And then just having the guts and the craziness to be like, I'm going to go do this on my own. And I think that's what makes entrepreneurship so hard. That's a scary leap, as I'm sure you know, as I'm sure everybody that you've talked to knows, depending on what time of life you're at, sometimes it's scarier than others. For me, it wasn't scary at the time, but there's been plenty of scary times along the way where you're just like, holy crap. So there's always opportunity out there. I always go. Think it goes back to you've got to understand yourself to the best of your ability. Without that, I don't know. I don't know how you can be happy and successful. And I think they're
0: hopefully linked. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon. Yeah, thank you,
2: man. I've been listening to your show for I don't know, the last couple of years. I always listen to like my workout. I like how you like really dive in and instead of just asking like the tip of questions. Like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome
0: it? Cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, why do you want to become a Patreon? I just, yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people, the more members I can get.
2: I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it in such a amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you I like check it once a month, and still, you know, it's adding value. I think just kind of like saying, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee.
0: <laughs> you did a good job of rounding up what my kind of last question was, because it sounds like We've talked in general about your business and then just different perspectives and what you've done, it seems like to grow and different examples. But I'm just curious, what has been the hardest thing about growing this business? Like what's been the ultimate, because you said there's been several, but at least the hardest thing that you've had to go through.
2: I think for me, it was in 2009, that economic downturn. I just think it was a scary time and I was 38. So, you know, kind of in the meat of just starting a family and those kinds of things. And then like the evolution, right, of recognizing that we were in a business that I didn't necessarily think was scalable or sustainable. So you're at that decision point. You're either going to evolve or die. And i never really been confronted with that before up until that point, evolve or die. So I think that's a scary thing. And I think those cliches of, well, it's what you do that defines you. It's very, very true. It would have been nothing for me to just be like, I can get a job anywhere. Like I wasn't worried about me being employed. I was very employable. But you know, I'm there with my sister and I love her and I believe in her and kind of what we're doing. And it was a scary time to turn around and say, we're going to completely change this business model. We don't do this. We're going to die. We have no choice but to succeed. And I just remember saying to her, God, if we could just sell $250,000 worth of subscriptions, I will feel like that's a success. To me that was my definition of success we sold that in 45 days so out of that back against the wall what are you going to do you tuck tail and run or do you double down and you just believe in what it is that you're doing and you're smart enough to recognize you're not on a fool's errand right and there's plenty of people who double down and they're just on a fool's errand you got to know the difference and we did i did that was it. And since then i think the hardest times are
0: Do you mind walking us more in detail what that transition was? Because you said there was like a switch. You had to have a pivot, like the way you were going to make money for the business. Just walk us through what you were doing before, then how you were able to make money. Because again, this is something that I think a lot of people could apply. Maybe everything else is going well in their business, but they've got to switch their subscription model or something in order to make this thing work.
2: Yeah. So I came out of an industry that built kind of a business based on a subscription-based model. Anytime you can have like steady, predictable revenue, you're not worried about where your next meal is coming from check. And so when you're in the consulting world, you're constantly on the treadmill. There is no end, right? There is no I finish the race.
0: You were just a consulting company before. And then you wanted to sell this information. That's when you made that transition, the pivot to subscription.
2: Yeah. It wasn't sell the information. It was sell our knowledge and expertise on what it was that we were doing.
0: Because there's only so
2: many of these things that you can, you got big companies who take care of it themselves and then others. So it was just, it wasn't scalable it was a lot of work, very little money, but the knowledge and the expertise was why people were coming to us. Also, the industry was incredibly fragmented. So just recognizing it really is just a simple turn of the dial. Instead of telling people one by one the same thing because they're different clients, what's going to happen when somebody gets diagnosed with prostate cancer? What are the treatments? How much are they going to cost me? What are the pitfalls? What are the, you know, all these questions that they have, they're the same questions. They're just coming from different payers, and they're just different patients, but they're all the same diagnosis. Well, Why keep repeating it over and over and over again? Why don't you just tell it to them once and let them access it whenever they need it? And it was just this simple twist of the dial and then expanding on that.
0: So was it like a back-end WebMD model? I'm trying to figure out. I'm not the smartest guy. I understand what you're saying before. You're consulting one by one and they're asking literally the same questions. You said you weren't selling the quote unquote information. I guess you didn't have private access and it was only your information. But to an extent, you're just kind of conglomerating all this information and all these people are coming there and looking at back-end web page or something like that instead. And that way it's smoother.
2: Exactly. If you look at all the stuff that's out there floating in the air, and webnd wouldn't be one of them, right? But, you know, peer review journals and all these things that exist out there. Some of them very conflicting, by the way, <laughs> right. right? Which is a problem in and of itself. And then what the government deems as clinically appropriate or billing, you got all these different disparate sources, and then you have to have experience of understanding how to apply that in the real world. And then having the knowledge to put that together in a way that is representative of not only what you know, but how you interpret these things and deliver it to somebody in a way in which they actually need to consume it for the industry in which you're in. If somebody's going to WebMD and they're responsible, maybe on the hook for claims over a million dollars, they're not going to use WebMD to do that. They're going to use 15 different sources and maybe 50% of them aren't vetted. And they're kind of just trying to figure it out. And some are better than others. Well, why not level the playing field and figure out for the things that you are really good at, how to deliver that information in a very comprehensive, usable way and have it have meaning and impact. It's difficult to do. So I think WebMD would be a good touchstone, but WebMD is going to be at a very big kind of macro level and never get into like the nitty gritty because treatment paths are as varied as the individuals who are on them. And you got to understand what that means somebody can have the same diagnosis and have a very different clinical course, clinical outcome, financial outcome. And it's all because of other things that kind of come into play. And you can understand all of those.
0: The other thing, which I think finally people seems like started realizing maybe 10 or 15 years, depends what ideology I guess you're coming from. But even understanding the patient's diet, sometimes that would be swept under the rug. It's like, oh, that matters too. So it's like, all these things. I guess when I said WebMD, I'm just trying to make it as easy for people to imagine because it's obviously audio only. Like they could imagine, I think, a WebMD for professionals that it gets way more complicated and on a back end that only these people could get. So hopefully, maybe that was too simplistic, but maybe it makes sense to everybody listening.
2: I definitely think that makes sense. You know, sometimes when we're talking to clients, we say, Have you ever heard of LexisNexis, right? A lot of people are familiar with LexisNexis. You know, I want to go in and look up, you know, legal cases. And I need to understand like all these different legal cases and then they cite another legal case and all those other things. So it's like a research tool to understand what typically has happened in the past. How does typically these things go? You know, what were the outcomes? So that's one of the products that we offer for a very specific set of professionals and industries. And we have five different solutions. That's just one of them, but they're all outgrowths from there. That's where it all started.
0: Yeah, it's like when people come to me, Peter, and they ask, how do you start a podcast? And I send them this cool website called Google. I'm like, just go look there. But you're basically the Google for your doctors there, I guess, diagnosing and trying to figure these things out that you can't. Maybe I don't want my doctor looking on Wikipedia and just seeing what they said there and going with that.
2: Yeah, I agree. You definitely don't want that. The doctors are actually very good. They're good. It's just right. It always comes down to who pays how much. The
0: billing, right? Yeah.
2: And understanding what the risk is for everybody involved. No matter who you are, if all of a sudden you have a $12 million claim land in your lap, that's bad for everybody. And so how do you manage that? How do you see it? How do you predict it? That's a big part of what we do. And sometimes the answer is you can't. It just happens. But it shouldn't be $12 million, right? And that's where you start to uncover why are they charging what they're charging? That shouldn't be allowed, but it is allowed.
0: Well, Peter, thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge. Do you have any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening? Find your
2: passion and then apply it to something that you think is enjoyable to you. And I think you'll be successful. And every one of the cliches, unfortunately, they are all true as much as you hate hearing them.
0: Right. Now, I had to be written down as Peter, the cliche guy. So I appreciate (laughs) that. If people want to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach out and say thank you?
2: Yeah, sure. It'd be my email, which is pborans, B-O-R-A-N-S, at M-D, Strat, S-T-R-A-T. All
0: right. Well, thank you for doing the interview here.
2: Thanks, Austin. Have a great day.
0: Guess what? We've got over 25 special Patreon episodes ready for you to listen to right this very second. All you have to do is become a member and you'll unlock this magical vault of knowledge. Plus, by becoming a member, you'll be able to join our group calls with past guests, and ask your questions directly to them. Another plus by becoming a member? Well, you'll help us keep coming out with podcast episodes on this very feed. Because without sponsors, it ain't financially viable for my team and me to keep producing these episodes for you. So help us keep this train moving forward by becoming a Patreon member today. Just visit the link in your episode description below or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon it's tough isn't it but that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people so it's just like there's wow. so many people who listen and don't do anything you know what I'm saying
2: I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening but I was curious how many people are paying I mean for me my dad even said "Bren, why are you paying this guy what what's he giving I said it's I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, you know? And I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money and, you know, I can do the math.